And we begin at the first verse. For those that would like to read along, it is on page 920 of the Red Bibles. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning a disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not, <clears throat> do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from, from their children forever. Get up, go away. For this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and a deceiver come and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in a pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them, and they will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Here ends our reading. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers here. It is great to be here. And uh, Penny's already prayed, so we are going to get straight to work, I think. And um, as we begin, I just want to say that um, London, ah, in my view, it is just one of the greatest cities on earth. Raise your hand if you've ever been to London, right? That's just about all of us. Uh, most of us have visited it. Some of us actually born there, grew up there. And my sense is a number of us have stayed there for a period of time. Um, I would have to say that our three years there were amongst the best three, probably the best three years of our life, which I can't say when the children are here because they weren't alive then. But in any case, it was great. We loved it. Some people tire of it, um, which as the old Samuel Johnson saying goes, if you're tired of London, you're really tired of life. But the wonder was never lost on me. Let me tell you about my commute. I used to get on the number 13 bus at Swiss Cottage and I travelled past Abbey Road, where the Beatles did you know, their recording. And then um, it would um, travel past Lords, the home of cricket. And then it would swing by, or swoop really, around the edge of Regent's Park. Along Baker Street, where Sherlock Holmes was kind of based. Uh, and then down Oxford Street, the main um, kind of shopping street in the whole city. We'd turn right at Oxford Circus and we'd curve down Regent Street, the most magnificent street in the whole country. 
Uh, and then we would end up at uh, Piccadilly Circus, where all the lights are, a really famous place. Uh, and then down past Trafalgar Square, you might have heard of that, and along Fleet Street, I'd get off the bus at Aldwych, and it'd be a quick um, walk to Chancery Lane where I used to work. And basically, my morning commute was like a touring the Monopoly board. I'm like, how can you possibly get tired of that? But there was this odd thing about London. Wherever you lived in England, north, south, east, west, it didn't matter. You always went up to London. You never went down. You never went across. You never went over to London. You always went up. And this became kind of codified in the 19th century when the railways arrived because if you were travelling to London, you actually waited on the up platform. And if you were travelling away from London, you waited on the down platform for your train to arrive. So all roads might lead to Rome, but all trains travel up to London, up to the important place, up to the centre of influence. And so it's interesting when we open our Bibles to uh, the prophetic book of Micah that we're looking at, where you'd really think the action uh, would be all upwards focused, you know, um, from earth to heaven, from people to the living God. But what we discover surprisingly today is that God is the one who comes down. He comes down in judgment upon the sins of his wayward people, and we'll need to hear that. But he also comes down to shepherd and to deliver his people who turn back to him. So down in judgment, but also down to deliver and lead. And that's what we're thinking about today. Last week, we started a four-week series. It's called Prophets Paving the Way for Christ. And we took a bird's-eye view of some of the many ways that the prophets in the Old Testament point towards Jesus. We said that every story actually whispers his name. But for today and the next two weeks, we're going into detail into the book of Micah, who prophesied in the 8th century. It was after the once unified kingdom of Israel had been split into a northern kingdom, which is there in the pink, and with its capital Samaria, and the southern kingdom, which is there in the kind of orange, with its capital Jerusalem. And at this time, Assyria was the superpower of the day. And if you read Micah chapter 1, it seems like Samaria, the capital of the north, was still intact. But as we move on through the book, it's been conquered by Assyria. And the question is whether Assyria will do the same to the south, to Judah, to Jerusalem, the very center of where God kind of dwelt. And that's all the background that we need for today, other than to say the name Micah is kind of a question. The name Micah means, who is God or who is a God like you, Lord? That's a good name, isn't it? It's a good question. And he's a God who comes down in judgment and also delivery. That's what we're thinking about today. So firstly then, God will come down in judgment. He, he's not just going to idly watch as his people wallow in evil. And you see that from the very beginning. So I hope you have your Bibles open there. Chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us the sovereign Lord will witness against his people in Samaria, the north, and Jerusalem. In the south. That doesn't sound too good. But uh, verses 3 and 4 sound truly worrying. Look, it says, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. And the mountains melt beneath him. The valleys kind of split apart. And the question is, why is God coming down in judgment? And it seems to me that in these first two chapters, there are three prevailing grievances God has with his people. The first is idolatry. Instead of his people worshipping the only true and living God, they worship things their hands have made. 
Now, isn't that a sobering thought as we head into the consumer onslaught that's known as Christmas? Just like the surrounding pagan nations set up altars on high places, they thought that's, that's where you got closest to God, up on those high places, mountains. The Israelites worshipped things that they'd made of stone and wood and placed there instead of the sovereign Lord of the universe. So idolatry is a problem. But it's also clear that as the nation had prospered, the wealth was not evenly distributed. There was a growing wealthy class and they were oppressing a growing landless underclass, seizing their land and their inheritance and using violence to do so. And you would have picked that up from our reading at the start of chapter 2 where Micah says, really speaking for God, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do so. They covet fields, yes, and then seize them, and houses, and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. You see, it's a dire situation, isn't it, that threatens the basic structure of that society. It's even worse than wealthy baby boomers snapping up all available properties for investment, forcing young people out of the first home buyer market. It's actually worse than that because it's brother defrauding brother of his future and doing that with violence. So there's unchecked greed and there's unmerited violence. And the third prevailing grievance is that most of the prophets, apart from Micah it seems, are unwilling to speak out against it. Perhaps they've got a vested interest in maintaining the current situation, the status quo, rather than speaking out for the marginalized. But have a look in chapter 2, verse 6. The prophets don't want to speak out. They say, don't prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And you drop down to verse 11. Micah says, listen, if some liar comes along and says, free beer, everyone, he would be just the prophet for this group of people. So there's idolatry, there's the worship of things other than the living God. There is greed and violence, and there is an unwillingness to speak out against these evils. And you are left wondering, what will God do? If anything, what will he do? I, um, yeah, there is so much that's sad, isn't there, about the untimely death of the cricketer, Phil Hughes, As a nation, my sense of it is that we feel gutted and helpless because there's nothing we could do. I felt the the nagging powerlessness of being a spectator throughout the whole thing. I've got no power to act. I've got no power to do. I've got no power to help. All that is left is to watch. I wonder if you've felt that too. I also wonder if sometimes we think that sense of nagging powerlessness afflicts God as well. That all he can do is witness things from heaven. These two chapters say otherwise. They say he comes down. And he comes down in judgment, in fact, upon his people of the north, Samaria, and his people of the south, Jerusalem. And in the back half of chapter 1, it's a little involved to work out precisely what is going on there. But you have a look at chapter 1, verse 8, and Micah is distraught when he sees how God uses the foreign superpower of Assyria to bring calamity upon Samaria and the northern part of the kingdom. And when he realizes that as Assyria turns its attention to the south, that God is bringing his judgment 
even to the gates of the royal city of Jerusalem. You'll see uh, in Micah's rueful lament there, verses 8 to 16 of chapter 1, there's a list of towns. And those towns are actually the name of towns that are en route to the Assyrians, capturing or marching with an aim to capture the city of Jerusalem. But if you have a look at the footnotes in your Bible, like have a look at them, you'll see that those names of towns have got kind of... um, Well, Micah does kind of word plays on the names of those towns so that his poem would be far more poignant for the first hearers. And we have to work just a little bit harder to kind of hear the forlornness in his voice. But to kind of paraphrase it, this this is what Micah says. Don't tell it in tell. Like tell is kind of one of the town names. Don't tell it in tell. Don't weep in weep. Roll in the dust in that city whose name sounds like house of dust. Press on in nakedness and shame, you who live in pleasant. That doesn't sound good. Those who live in come out, you won't come out. House of departure is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. Those who live in bitter writhe in pain, waiting for relief, because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of the foundation of peace. That's what the city of Jerusalem means. You who live in a team, harness the team to the chariot. There's going to be war. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. Therefore, you will give parting gifts, not wedding gifts, parting gifts to betrothed. The town of deception will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel, and I will bring a conqueror against you who live in conqueror. It's devastatingly poetic. He looks upon the destruction of Samaria in the north and the downward march of the Assyrians throughout the towns of Judah towards Jerusalem And he sees not just a ruthless earthly power advancing, but the judgment of God upon his wayward people. And he finishes with such dreadful lines there in verse 16 of chapter 1. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture. They will go from you into exile. Your children will go from you into captivity, into imprisonment in a foreign land, which they did in the 8th century when Assyria attacked the whole land, even besieging Jerusalem. Uh, And the people of Jerusalem who held out on that occasion would later go into captivity at the hands of Babylon, as matters of history. Throughout the work of the nations and the superpowers of the day, God came down in judgment because he's not a helpless spectator. And the prophet Micah looks at the Assyrians cracking the northern kingdom and its capital, and he wonders whether the capital of the south of Jerusalem will understand the lesson that God comes down on judgment upon resolutely rebellious people. When he sees that the people of Jerusalem won't, he weeps and he wails about it. The question to ask is whether we will heed the lesson of Samaria and the lesson of Jerusalem in Micah's time. Back to London. I was reading uh, this book by a New York Times best-selling author called Malcolm Gladwell. He was writing about um, the start of World War II and how British military command were terrified of what would happen should the Germans start dropping bombs on the English capital. Like, obviously, there'd be physical destruction there, but they were much more worried about the psychological toll. What effect would it have on London and the whole country if the Germans blitzed the city? Sure enough, in 1940 and 1941, the Germans rained down bombs on London on 71 occasions. What they realized is something totally unexpected happened. 
For those who lived in houses that suffered direct hits, it was obviously devastating. Those who lived next door, they were traumatized. But to those who lived on the next street or the next, next suburb or the other side of town, Gladwell calls them remote misses, it had the opposite effect. They weren't traumatized. In fact, they were emboldened. They had passed through the threat and come out alive. And it made them fearless. And it fortified and stiffened the resolve of the whole city. And so the air raid sirens would wail and boys would keep playing soccer in the streets. Or the mums would keep pushing their babies in prams. The direct hits had an obviously devastating effect. And the near misses traumatized people, as you'd expect. But the remote misses, they emboldened people rather than frightened them. It was very, very interesting. Now, I think the destruction of Samaria in the north was a remote miss for the people in Jerusalem in the south. Instead of reacting with repentance, they carried on in their regular wicked ways, emboldened. Foolishly, as it turns out, because Micah 1 verse 16 says their children will be taken away in exile, which happened as a matter of history. As a matter of history. Now, I also think that those historical events function as a remote miss for us, don't you? Isn't that a possibility? We don't really think God came down in judgment. We don't really think he worked through the superpowers of the day. We think that historical event is just too far away in time. So we've got nothing to worry about. It might even embolden us in our sin. I hope it's okay to say or to ask the question, I wonder if even the death of Phil Hughes could be a remote miss for us. One minute this young man is fighting fit. He's on his way to making a first-class century. The next minute struck down, never to recover. And does that actually have the effect of impressing upon us our own fragility? That one day we must meet our maker. Does that push us to come before God in repentance and humility? Or are we the most foolish of spectators who watch the tragedy unfold before us and do not absorb the lesson of our own fragility and mortality because it's a remote miss? Micah's lament is a stunning reminder to change and to move. If you find yourself living outside the will of God, if you don't live at peace with God because you don't trust in his only son, Jesus, my question is, is it time to turn back to him today? Or even as a Christian, if you're living in unbelief, there are just ungodly things in your life that you know you need to change These two chapters remind us that there is an urgency to turn back in repentance and faith with belief and with obedience. And I do want to encourage it to soften your heart rather than embolden you in your sin. Fortunately for us, uh, judgment is never the final word for the people of God who turn back to him. We have seen him come down in judgment, but secondly for today, God also comes down in deliverance. Judgment is never the end of the matter. God will also come down to deliver his people who turn back to him. And you can see that really clearly in the last two verses of chapter 2, which Bruce read to us, where Micah says of God, 
I will surely gather you, O Jacob. I will surely bring them back together, the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. You see, judgment is never the final word for the people of God who turn back to him. For those people who heed the lesson of the remote misses in history and in life, God also comes down in delivery. Now, I was chatting to Bruiser a bit earlier about um, internet shopping, and uh, we commented about how delivery was kind of one of those, well, it was a bit annoying at times, isn't it? It's an important feature of the transaction. If there's free delivery, we're in. I'll buy it, right? But if we're buying a pair of white Haviana thongs online, which is the only thing I wanted for my birthday this week, it doesn't matter if there's a $5 discount on the footwear if there's a $9 delivery charge. It just doesn't work. So delivery is a very important part of that transaction. But, you know, delivery is an even more important part of our spiritual lives. What we see in these chapters is that God himself is the one who comes down to provide delivery. In verse 12, he's described as a shepherd who gathers his people together. In verse 13, he's described as a liberating king who breaks open the way for the people, passing through them and then leading them, heading the way back together. And so these first two chapters, they do, um, they do teach us that there are sins to reject. There is the sin of idolatry in which we worship created things like our careers, our possessions, our lifestyles, comforts, maybe even our families, rather than the Creator. There's that. There's the sin of greed where enough is never enough and the abundance we crave comes at the expense of the needs of others. And there is the sin of not speaking up where we should. And brothers and sisters, these are sins to avoid and sins to reject. But these chapters also show us there is a shepherd to follow as God comes down in delivery. There is a shepherd to follow and to embrace. I don't know if you've ever noticed um, when Mark describes the feeding of the 5,000 in the New Testament, chapter, uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, you ever notice this? There are people everywhere. And then Mark 6 verse 34 says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Get this. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then in verse 39 of Mark 6, it specifically says Jesus directed groups of hundreds, groups of fifties to sit down on the what? On the green grass, it says, where he fed them and taught them. Don't you think the New Testament is saying that Jesus is the one who gathers the people of God together? like a flock in its pasture until the place is thronging with people? Isn't the Gospel of Mark saying that Jesus is nothing short of God who has come down in delivery, and not just by feeding people, and not just by teaching people, but ultimately by sacrificing his life for all those who turn from their sins to him, delivering us from our sins and the penalty that our sins deserve, and in his resurrection, delivering us from death as well? Should we turn back to God? Should we trust and believe in his son? And there's much more for us to learn about this next week. But as we finish today, there are sins to avoid and sins to reject. And I hope that you can hear that clarion call this morning. But there is also a shepherd to follow. And his name is Jesus. And in Jesus, we have God who has not only come down in judgment, but one who has come to gather and deliver us. And friends, that really is the very heart of the Christmas message. Let me pray for us. Let me lead us in prayer.
Heavenly Father God, we thank you for these chapters in Micah. They teach us uh, about a God who comes down in judgment. And so help us to reject those sins he spoke of there. They also teach us of a God who comes down to deliver. A shepherd king who we know is uh, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray these things and we praise him that his name might be honoured among us. Amen.